Hello and welcome to a bonus edition of the Indie Jigsaw Show. We're delighted to be joined by Bill Ramsey from Scottish CND. I'm Fiona McGregor and my co-host is Marlene Halliday and we are the Indie Live podcast team from Independence Live Media. Back in January this year, we did an episode of the Indie Jigsaw Show where we looked at how to get rid of Trident from Scotland. And this episode is a bit of a special update in view of developments arising out of the Ukraine war. In the programme itself, we talked a lot about the implications for us as a newly emerging independent country from the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like from from then, Putin has invaded Ukraine and the world security situation has almost been turned on its head, really. Sweden and and Finland asking to join NATO. So we're contacted by Bill Ramsey and he proposed that he come on the show to talk to us. But also there was uh, another issue he wanted to deal with first, which was a statement made by the SNP's defence spokesperson, Stuart MacDonald, which has caused, I would say, some consternation. So let's see what it was that Stuart said, first of all, and then we'll bring in Bill. Our priority will be for the safe removal and to ensure that we have the conventional capabilities to be a a contributing member of the Alliance. Would an independent Scotland ban any nuclear weapons, say a visiting submarine from America? Well, we would join on similar terms to those of Norway or Denmark uh, in that we don't want to permanently host uh, nuclear weapons from other states, but we certainly will take our commitments as new members of the Alliance seriously. And we want to do that in a way. I don't think anyone's suggesting that Independent Scotland should permanently be the host to another state's uh, nuclear weapons, but I'm not suggesting for a second that any other commitments that we need to adhere to we would somehow turn our backs on them, but we will be a nuclear-free member of NATO like most member states. Wouldn't prevent a visiting nuclear submarine from docking at a Scottish port for a night or two. So again, we would join on a similar terms to those of Norway or of Denmark do at the minute, where you're not, you don't host them permanently, but there are rules around uh, the visiting of uh, nuclear facilities, whether they be nuclear weapons themselves or just nuclear-powered submarines in peacetime, but I'm not suggesting for a minute that we would turn our backs on be expected of as as an Alliance member. We're sitting here with Bill Ramsey. Bill, welcome to the programme again. It's really, really good to have you back. We had you with us back earlier in the year, along with Isabel Lindsay and John Kearns. And at that point, we did a whole programme about how we could um, get rid of uh, Trident and the nuclear warheads from Scotland after independence with the help of the Nuclear Weapons um, Prohibition Treaty. Of course, since then, security position in the world has changed, you know, almost on its head. NATO's come together, but also, you know, Sweden and Finland asking to join. Tell us where you think things are now. First of all, I'd like to say just one or two things about Ukraine to get that out of the way, if I may, because we're focusing on Scotland um, and the Ukraine, eh, what's happening in Ukraine, this tragedy, this illegal invasion by Putin is condemned. Indeed, two weeks ago, I was a delegate to the Scottish Trade Union Congress and it passed a motion condemning the Russian invasion and also supporting Ukraine. And I actually moved that emergency motion at the SDUC Congress, supporting Ukraine and condemning Putin. So I want to make that point crystal clear. But on the other hand, there's certain aspects of what's happened in relation to this war in Ukraine that have thrown up some um, interesting, if I can put it that way, it's quite tragic, but some interesting um, issues for the issue of Scottish security today and into the future. And one of them is the re-emergence of of the discourse around nuclear weapons in the mainstream security debate. We've seen a Putin effectively threaten the use of tactical nuclear weapons. And that's always been in the background because the use of tactical nuclear weapons with the potential to escalate into bigger bombs and bigger bombs and into a a nuclear um, holocaust has always been there. And that use of tactical nuclear weapons has been part of the playbook of the Russians and the West 
though both sides, particularly in the West, because we're in the West, don't want to talk about it, because mm-hmm. they like to frame the supporters of nuclear deterrence, those who believe that nuclear deterrence has utility for Scotland, and there are some, they, they like to frame the issue of nuclear weapons as it's highly unlikely, it would be a nuclear Armageddon, and it would be the last stage in a process. Right. But we're learning now, because of yeah. the Ukrainian situation, we're in real, real difficulty. Only yesterday I was listening to a seminar by Professor Neil Ferguson, who's a unionist, who's quite right-wing from my point of view, and I don't agree with him. But his analysis of where Putin is, and Putin, in a conventional term, seems to be being defeated. That seems to be the case in a conventional sense. But the problem is, how do you defeat, inverted commas, a nuclear superpower? We've never been in that situation in the world before. And as Ferguson said, there are no historical precedents for this. Mm. So as many nuclear analysts are saying, but again, because we are supporting Ukraine, and understandably so, the BBC is in full behaving itself mode, if I can put it like that. We know what that's like in the independence movement. And there are certain issues that are not being covered. And that potential of nuclear escalation is being uh, poo-pooed. It's yeah. been put away. You know, yeah. whenever it comes up, people say, ah, well, you know, that's not the case. But Putin is making these threats. Could you just say, so that people know clearly what the difference is between a tactical nuclear weapon and the big ones that are in the silos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's broadly three types. And ironically, when I, in my early days in the 1980s as a modern studies teacher, when the then Cold War was in full, you know, full tilt, and I think we're back into a new Cold War, but the two main protagonists are actually China and the USA. But leaving that aside for the moment, there are three types. There are the big ones, and the late Professor John Erickson used to say, um, the, the, the heavyweights, the big ones that uh, would, dis- you know, would end up destroying the planet would be fired from the USA, fired from Russia, fired from China, and also fired from, from, from Britain's uh, nuclear submarines. They're the ones that would be quite devastating for the planet. There are, and then there are ones that are the same, but shorter ranged. And that's what Putin's worried about, that shorter range nuclear weapons might be placed in the likes of Poland or Ukraine. Uh, but the Finns, by the way, and the Swedes have made, no, we're not having any nuclear weapons of any type on our territory. So there's the middle range ones. And the points about the middle range one is the flying time between uh, Europe and Russia is minutes. And so how do you react? Yeah. There is no way to react. You just don't know. You know, you, there is no half hour time for a president to react. It doesn't exist. So the very existence of intermediate range nuclear weapons in Europe is in itself an escalation. And that's part of this mix. The tactical ones, and again, they've been around. I remember teaching about them in modern studies 30 years ago, are, are small ones. That is, they could take out. Um, and you know a small town, and a, you know the devastation would be limited to a small town. They were designed initially by the West to take out large Russian armored formations a, that would be deployed in East Germany or in Poland when they're in the Warsaw Pact. That would explode above, say, eight hundred or a thousand armored vehicles and take everything out and have a limited effect. There is, of course, the fallout from those yeah. weapons. But the other thing is because of that that we, we now have an ability to take large nuclear weapons and literally dial them down, dial down the warheads. So each side doesn't know whether that missile is carrying a tactical nuke or a bigger nuke. So it introduces more uncertainty. And remember, we'll remember the days when we knew there was meant to be a hotline between the White House and the Kremlin. Well, those hotlines have been removed. And a lot of the disarmament architecture that both the Russians and the Americans were involved in, you can remember, we can remember photographs of the likes of Richard Nixon standing, talking, smiling with Soviet leaders because they actually were in communication with each other. And although we had that threat during the first Cold War, they were talking with each other. They had structures to try and de-escalate. Now, the TPNW, which which will be the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is going to come up in Vienna in two or three weeks' time, and Bill Kidd and other parliamentarians, I think, are going to be there, that's trying to bring back that nuclear architecture so that we can start to have 
the nuclear superpowers talk to each other? Because at the moment, as Ferguson actually said yesterday when I listened to him in the seminar, we're in a proxy war, like the Korean War was a proxy war between Russia and the United States. We're now in a situation where the Ukraine is becoming a proxy war between the West and, and Putin. The United States, for instance, have signed off a package of military aid to Ukraine, which is bigger than the annual budget of the Russian Federation. I'm just saying that as a matter of scale. That's where we are. Some nuclear analysts yeah. think that we are in, a, in as dangerous a position of a nuclear war as we were back at the time of the, new, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. And that, to some extent, I think has been underplayed. Yeah, it's chilling. Uh, I'm just listening to you go, taking us through that. It is absolutely chilling. And it does remind those of us of a certain age what some of what it was like, some of what it was like back then. Um, okay, so that's really good to have that background. So go back to where we are now then in terms of what's being said and uh, yeah, what's, yeah. What's, what's now emerged. There's a, there's a bit of a stushy here in Scotland because of an inappropriate remark that uh, the defence spokesperson of my party, the SNP, Stuart MacDonald, made. He talked about the issue of Scotland joining NATO. That's fine. That's SNP policy. But then went further. He then talked about the um, issue of a nuclear armed submarines from the United States coming to a Scottish base. Now, the first question is, how would a Scottish base that's got rid of uh, the Trident boats and the infrastructure of the Trident boats, how would such a base be of use to the, to, to the American Navy in the first place? So there's a question there. But the second point is, the SNP and the Greens for that matter, and indeed because of that, a majority in the Scottish Parliament, uh, are in favour of the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And one of the provisions of that treaty is that you don't have such visits to your territory. Now, here's the problem for Stuart in his loose language. Stuart has, as a signatory of the International Campaign for Nuclear Weapons, a pledge to support Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons when they have an opportunity to do so in their own state's parliament. Now, Scotland doesn't have a sovereign parliament at the moment, but it's clear from the SNP, MP, MSPs, MPs and uh, Green uh, parliamentarians, by, by committing themselves to the ICANN pledge, what they have said is, at the first opportunity, when we have a sovereign parliament, we will ratify the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons as 61 sovereign states have done. 80 odd states actually set the process uh, in motion couple of years ago in the United Nations General Assembly. But and yesterday it was 60 and I found out this morning there's now 61 states have ratified the TPNW in their sovereign parliaments. That means that those 61 states are bound by that treaty. States have not signed it are not bound. It's like, say, the, the treaty that Princess Diana took forward in landmines. Where states ratify that treaty, they are bound by that treaty. Where states don't ratify that treaty, they are not bound by that treaty. And more and more states in the UN are supporting that treaty. So in other words, it's becoming the international norm. It will take time for it to grow. And, and that's the nature of treaties, they grow. But the problem with Stuart is, Stuart, in his words, in a very, how can one put this, bullish tone, said, oh yeah, you know, we love American nukes on a temporary basis, uh, visiting Scottish naval bases. And that's not an appropriate thing for a Scottish National Party politician to say, particularly when in 2021, the motion, it's only 62 words, it's easily read, it's not long, the motion pointing out that every SNP candidate in the 2021 Scottish Parliament elections had signed the ICANN pledge, and many of the MPs had done as well. That became party policy, and it wasn't, you know, a party, poli party policy that was won after, you know, a very bruising debate. I mean, the NATO position was won, democratically so, by 14 votes. But the TPNW vote was over 400, 
to 14. As I often say, independence is in the constitution of the Scottish National Party. But being anti-nuclear, not pacifist, but anti-nuclear, is in the DNA of the Scottish National Party. And for Stuart to make such a statement, he can't expect to get away with that unscathed. And so he's getting a very serious slap. It's inappropriate. And yes. if he feels self-confident he wants to have a debate about it, then let him, at the next party conference, introduce a motion, unapologetically saying, from time to time we'll have nukes in the Clyde. He can do that, but he can't say it. He can't use his imprimatur as the SNP defence spokesperson to say that. He could say, well, I, you know, I don't agree with this position, and I'm going to put forward a motion at the next party conference. That's democracy. And moreover, there's another point about this, which I make sure people don't get conflated about. During COVID, people could say, with some justification, that um, the leadership style of my party has been somewhat centralised. And if anyone believes that that motion would have got onto the agenda, if certain members of leadership did they like it, they must be in cloud cuckoo land. So we're talking about a position here that is unequivocally the Scottish National Party position. No ifs, no doubts. Yeah. And you'll get the gainsayers uh, and you get the unionists will turn around and say, ah, well, you know, you're signing up to NATO. This is incompatible. But as I've said, strangely enough, although the Ukrainian war is a tragedy, the emergence of the, 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 the Finns and the Swedes going into NATO, and by the way, that's not a done deal. The Turks have issues, and the Turks, like all NATO members, have a veto. So, you know, we'll wait to see what happens if, Tur if, the, if Turkey is yeah, yeah. to let these two, and they'll, they'll be wanting something in return to let, yeah. to, to, let, to let these. The idea that these two countries are coming in, and they are coming in, they are being welcomed, and their position on nuclear weapons is crystal clear. There are no having them. And even the most hawkish member of the United States Senate, Senate is not going to criticise them. So any, yeah. any, any suggestion that a non-nuclear Scotland uh, will be problematic for NATO is absurd. Of course, the pro-nuclear people in NATO will, because of Stuart's remark, see that as a sign of weakness. They'll see that as a sign of lack of self-confidence in your own position. So we're in a bizarre position today where Sweden and Finland unapologetically have decided to go for NATO. But also on a project, it said, by the way, we're not having to do any nukes and, and no one in NATO is batting an eyelid. Yeah, that's really helpful. I picked up a bit about what's in, you know, what's in news and what Stuart said, but I, I hadn't picked up that he'd said the main, the main thing is obviously that he said American subs with, with nuclear warheads on it could visit Scottish, uh, Scottish waters. I hadn't picked that up. It, it left me thinking, well, well, what's the problem here? Because if it's just about saying they'll still be in Trident on the Clyde for a few years after independence. That's obvious, isn't it? It's going to take some years to get sorted out. And on the article in the National, there's comments at the bottom of it, and quite a few people saying that. So obviously, that's not really the main point, is yeah. it? The main point is is what he said about visits. Because has there been any sort of formal response from the SNP? Are they supporting what he said? Are they suggesting he's maybe just spoken oh, loosely? It's or... a bit of a deafening silence. You know, and, and, and that and, and that's where they are. I mean, the matter the, the matter will you know will blow away in a, in a few days' time. It's, it's just a faux pas. I mean, it's a five star faux pas, but it's a faux pas. As you know, Independence Live is not party political, and the Scottish Greens have had something to say. Here's Ross Greer for the Scottish Greens. It's no surprise to anyone that the Scottish Greens and the SNP have different positions on NATO. Indeed, in our agreement between the two parties that saw us enter government together last year, there is an agree to disagree section and NATO's in there. We're, we're comfortable having different points of view. For the Scottish Greens, we enthusiastically believe in cooperation, especially in areas like security and defence, and we agree with the First Minister that Scotland has a really positive role to play in Europe's collective security arrangements. But we disagree on membership of NATO for two reasons. You heard Patrick Harvey 
list one of them. That's NATO's first strike nuclear policy. NATO reserves the right to launch the first strike in a nuclear war. That would be world-ending. We believe that's simply evil. No one has the right to do that, and therefore it would be morally wrong for Scotland to join such an alliance. Yeah, but that's, I mean, any, any NATO member would tell you it's a deterrent tactic, that, isn't it? But it is a NATO policy. First strike is not about responding to attack. First strike is about reserving the right to, to start the last world war because it would be the war that ended the world but, as but we it, know it. That's it's the a, nature it's of nuclear It's a mutually weapons. assured destruction pact. It's a deterrent. The idea of nuclear weapons is if, you have, if two sides have them, neither will use them. We fundamentally reject that. The very existence of nuclear weapons risks the chance of nuclear war. We want to persuade rogue and hostile states to reduce their nuclear stockpiles. Asking them to do it, demanding that they do it unilaterally, has no chance of success. We should be trying to do it through reducing our own stockpiles at the same time. Okay. But this is a fundamental moral question. I don't want the last thing that my country potentially does in its existence to be wipe another country off the map. Okay, nuclear but, weapons but, are simply but, evil. Okay, but unfortunately, circumstances change and events dictate uh, attitudes, don't they? Because Sweden and Finland had very similar attitudes to you. The Finnish population has consistently hovered around 20% in its uh, approval ratings of joining NATO. Then Russia invades Ukraine. Uh, the last survey uh, in uh, earlier this month said 76% of Finns now want their country to join NATO. This is uh, becoming a fairly urgent issue for a lot of Europeans and the only way they consider themselves safe. I can't claim to know what it must feel like to live in a country where those are the risks, but I know my Green colleagues in these countries, for example, are struggling with those moral questions. But Scotland isn't in that place. Scotland is on the western periphery of Europe. We're clearly at no threat of a territorial invasion by Russia. Our security and defence needs are different. And that was Ross Greer from the Scottish Greens. Now back to our studio. The other aspect which people will try and bring in is the time scale of trying removal. The Royal Naval Base in the Clyde is not going to close the day after a successful independence referendum. Of course it's not. That's an absurdity. But the point is, the idea of a Trident remaining in the Clyde as an operating system for many years doesn't really add up. And let me explain why. So we know Samuel Pepys is in the diaries, but he was actually a, a sort of civil servant in the Royal was, Navy. Yeah. Since yeah. his days, alternative basing arrangements for ships has been bread and butter works of naval staff officers the world over. You've got assets based here, but what happens if something happens in this base? Where do we put them? So alternative basing arrangements is just bread and butter work right. for naval staff officers, right? So the idea that the Royal Navy, and it's a very professional Navy, doesn't do alternative basing arrangements is an absurdity. Indeed, it would be a professional insult to the staff officers of the Royal Navy to say that they don't do alternative basing arrangements. Of course they do. Moreover, last September, this issue was the discourse on the front page of the Financial Times. There were unnamed senior officials talking to me. Of course, we're doing alternative basing arrangements. We're not going to talk about it. And that's understandable as well, because you know military assets are based here. We're not going to advertise to potential opponents. Yeah. We're going to put them somewhere else. Yeah. So I understand why that sort of stuff remains secret. But it goes further. Some people will say, ah, well, the idea of an independent Scotland has never been credible because they've not done that alternative basing staff work. Well, there's two answers to that. First one, they always have. They'll have done it as a training exercise for staff officers. Believe that one aside. When the SNP won the 2007 Scottish Parliament elections, the prospect of Scottish independence and the re-emergence of a sovereign Scottish state absent nuclear weapons has been part of the world reality. Mm. Now, no British politician, unionist politician, to say, oh my God, we're going to do alternative basing arrangements for Trident. They're not going to say that publicly. But the naval staff officers sure as hell will have been doing it. And the Financial Times front page article proves it's been going on. Now, 2007, 15 years to give serious thought to this. So that will have happened. The question is, where did they go? Now, there are some people in the anti-nuclear movement, and this is a legitimate position, who take an approach, well, if they're known the Clyde, they're known anywhere. They're gone. We've managed to get rid of Britain's nuclear weapons at a stroke. As far as I'm concerned, I'm a member of the Scottish National Party. I believe in self-determination of peoples. And if the English 
after independence, want to put them somewhere down south, that's for them to decide. But I don't think they will, because suddenly the yeah. port of Devonport suddenly looms in the horizon. And the people of England will say, what? They don't even, they don't even know where Fazlane is. And the idea of having nuclear weapons parked in you know, Devonport, it will focus the minds of the people of England. But actually, let me decide. They will have their nuclear debate. When we become independent, the remaining UK, as we all know, will have to have a wake-up call. Great Britain will literally have gone, and they'll have to reassess. But that's for them to do. Presumably, but they'll still be in NATO, though. Whatever the rest of the UK is called is still going to be a, a NATO member. And although this is maybe getting off the point a little of what you came on here to talk about, when you look at what Turkey's doing, you kind of wonder, well, will the UK veto a Scottish application just out of badness, or will they actually approve it on the basis that we keep the nukes? <laughs> yeah, well, 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 actually, in that sense, they won't have a say. It's the United States that makes these decisions. If they <laughs> but yeah, the point about NATO is really interesting, and I think this one won't, what I'm about to say won't actually unpack for a wee bit time yet because of the serious in the Ukraine situation because the BBC is in full state mode at the moment. People are saying um, the Ukraine war has bringing NATO together. In one sense, that's true. But in another sense, it is actually the opposite. For instance, right now, as we speak, yesterday, I think it was, France, Germany and Italy issued a sort of statement saying it's time to look at ending this war, okay? Others in NATO are saying, oh, no, 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 no. Some American politicians are saying, we've got the Russians in the back foot. Let's continue. You know, we can fight this. You can fight this to the last Ukrainian. And you are getting, you are actually getting members of the United States House of Representatives saying, we've got Russia in the run here. Let's press on. Let's continue this conventional war. And remember, there's artillery duels going on at the moment of a massive scale. Let's continue this war until we flatten the Russians conventionally. But the point, to get back to my point about NATO and the French, the Germans and the Italians and others, they are trying to introduce a solution, bring the war to an end, bring the war to some sort of conclusion. Now, as a senior trade union official for, for a good bit of my life, I know that industrial disputes come to an end. We all want that. And there is no big winner and big loser. And with Russia, nuclear power, it's no, you can't even make it a big loser because then Putin will get back to the tactical stuff we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But the French, the Germans, and the Italians are wanted to start to talk about what does the end game look like. We can't completely humiliate Putin. As Ferguson said yesterday, there has to be some sort of end game. United States don't want to talk about the end game. President Zelensky, and I understand that he is doing everything to defend his country against this invasion. And I do not gainsay him for but this. I have no issues with Zelensky. I see where he's coming from. But on the one hand, You've got the French supplying the Ukraine with artillery pieces, modern artillery. But at the same time, you get President Zelensky saying to President Macron, oh, you know, we don't want to talk about the end game now. We don't want to talk about it. So one of the issues for the Scottish National Party, some months in the future, is going to be, we know that one of the key um, organisations we want to join is the EU. That's SNP policy pretty much at the moment. And I don't think that's going to change. At some point, we're going to be looking at EU membership. Who do we run with in NATO? The French, the Germans, the Italians, or the UK and the United States? Mm. Who's got the key to Scotland's membership of the EU? The French, <laughs> the Germans, the Italians, or the UK, or the Americans? You know, we have to develop a positive relationship, particularly with the French and the Germans, yeah. because there's something else which, again, won't be unpacked 
until some point in the future. It's been noticed, but no, not analysed. Well, not analysed uh, in, in our media so far. As a response to the Ukraine war, Germany has decided to up its defence budget. And Germany, remember, is the biggest economy in Europe. It's very large. That means that very soon, the Germans will be spending more in defence than the Russians. And when they're spending that sort of money, they move further up the table in terms of clout. The Germans are not going to spend that sort of money and be pushed around. Mm. You're not talking about the Russians. That's not the case. Also, the blowback, the economic blowback from the Ukraine war is significant everywhere. We're going to feel it. But the Germans, in a relative sense, are going to get it in the neck even bigger. They're not. Consider the point of German Chancellor in a few months' time. I've got the biggest defence budget in Europe, bigger than the Russians. The blowback of the Ukraine war is bigger than us and anyone else. They will be demanding a solutions-based approach, along with the French. And so where will the SNP sit? Where will the, you know, because we want to join the EU. I, I would argue it's more important to Scotland than, than NATO is. And I, I personally, I'm not caring whether Scotland's in NATO or not, because as we are learning slowly, there are different positions within NATO. You know, the, the nearer you get to Russia, the more paranoid they get. Understandably so. And I don't think there's been a 50-year period in the past 300 years mm. when some iteration yeah. of Poland has not fought a war against some iteration of Russia. The Russians and the Poles mm. don't go. I yeah. get that. Yeah. yeah. We're in the West. We're in Western Europe. We're in the position of the French, the Germans, and the Italians and people like that. And at, that, at some point in the future, the SNP will have to decide in its uh, policy, do we want back into, into the EU? Who's got the keys? Yeah, indeed. And I mean, it's an interesting way of putting it, like who are we going to run with? You know, Italy, Germany, France, they're the ones who are the key for us getting back into, into the EU. So, I mean, that's a kind of very pragmatic kind of way of thinking about it. But actually, it's also the right stance to take, isn't it? I mean, no matter how galling it will be, perhaps, that Putin's still there crowing away, claiming some sort of victory, um, you know, in, in Ukraine, some sort of sm smaller victory than the one he wanted. No matter how galling that would be, actually, it's not just even where Ukraine and Europe needs to go. I mean, the world needs that to happen. I mean, you look at all the, the, the comments that have been made just now about, you know, a world food crisis because of the you know immense kind of contribution that Ukraine, I mean, and Russia as well, make to make to the world's wheat supplies. What is the phrase they use? Giving Putin an off ramp so that he yeah, can... yeah, it's a cornered rat thing as well, isn't it? Exactly, that is a good point. You could take virtually any aspect of this war in Ukraine, and you can point to examples of the fact that Putin is delusional about his view of what Russians and I don't actually as Putin's view of what a Russian is. It's exactly the same view as what the Tsars had and yeah. the, the then Orthodox Church and the army. And Putin's view of Russia is bizarrely very Tsarist. The point is, at some point, you, 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 you either grind your opponent into the ground and you have an unconditional surrender. But we've never had been in a situation like this. How do you take a state that's got thousands of nuclear weapons and grind them into the dust. The only way you do that is by grinding humanity into the dust. Yeah. Mm. We've got to come up with solutions. Even the Pope has had pelters over this. The Pope actually said he condemns Putin. He condemns what he's done. But he wants peace and he wants resolution. He pointed out that NATO sort of bat at the Russian bear. And for that, you get pelters in some of the, 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 the talk shows in the United States. I remember seeing one online with some talk show hosts. How can the Pope, you know, mm. support evil, which is not what he's doing? So it's really complicated in many ways. But in another sense, it's dead simple. There is a nuclear power. How does a nuclear power lose a war without mm. becoming dead? I think Fiona's point about being cornered is really important. Because if he's cornered, does he decide to, as a flourish, fire a nuclear weapon? 
and pardon me for using the term flourish, does he take a wee nuke, one of these small dialed-down tactical nukes, and fire it as a test in Siberia, and then invite the journalists of the world's media to go along and look at the, the remains of the tethered goats in the, in the blast area? Does he fire one into some low-population area of Ukraine, or does he take a, a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile and put a conventional warhead on it and fire it at Faslane, what, do what does he do? I mean, you know, the, the, the options for escalation, and I mean, they're massive. But the problem with nuclear weapons is, I tried to give an analogy for nuclear weapons, and it's like, if you pardon me using this analogy, a domestic dispute. Someone's cornered, and they pick up a kitchen knife. That's what nuclear weapons are like. They are in a class of their own. You can't control them the way you control the use of other weapons. It is like someone desperate, they're cornered in the kitchen and they grab the kitchen knife out of fear and they end up, you end up with a domestic tragedy. Yeah. That's what nuclear weapons are like. Mm. Putin gets back to the corner, he gets jumpy. And if he thinks, as some analysts do, by the way, who are not cornered, who are not necessarily in a jumpy situation. Oh, well, we can escalate to de-escalate. We can fire a wee nuke here and everybody will get the point. You know, we'll, we'll unnerve them. I can get why Zelensky, I don't agree with him, I can get why, say, President Zelensky is prepared. His back's against the wall. He wants every... A form of aid he can get from where he get. Yeah, get. yeah. He also wants every yard of Ukraine soil back, doesn't he? Yeah. From we can all understand that. But there is one canard about this that I would like to also deal with. In question time a few weeks ago, a very irresponsible Labour politician said the following: Maybe Ukraine shouldn't have got rid of their nuclear weapons when they had them, because at the time of the Soviet Union some of the nuclear weapons were actually based on Ukrainian soil, as they were in some other parts of the Soviet Union that are no longer part of the Russian Federation. Now, that one is a fantasy. Let me explain why. First of all, those weapons on Ukrainian soil were under the control of the uniformed officers of the Soviet Union's strategic rocket forces, okay? They were not under the control of a Ukrainian army that had still to be set up or Ukrainian armed forces, right? The notion that whoever was the leader of Russia at the time would have told the officers of the strategic rocket forces based in the bases in Ukraine, hand these over to the Ukrainians. It wouldn't have happened. There's a number of reasons why it wouldn't have happened, but it wouldn't have happened. That's point number one. Point number two, the Americans get very iffy when other countries even as much look in the direction of a nuclear weapons program. Iran, for instance, is under crushing sanctions because the Americans think they may well develop nuclear weapons. Had the Ukraine tried to, shall we say, um, go in and grab the weaponry of the strategic rocket forces of the Soviet Union and overcome the soldiers of the strategic forces of the Soviet Union. Not only would the, the Russian armed forces reacted with weaponry, they would have been supported by the United States to do that. Yeah. Way back then, yeah. apart from one particular academic, who in many ways, John Mearheimer, a realist a, from the Realist School of Geopolitics, is very good in some areas, but that's one area where he's, I believe he's talking through a homie said. Um, it's just simply the idea of the Ukrainians holding on to their nuclear weapons was sim at the time, if you look at it, was incredible. Yeah. The Russians when they tolerated it, the Americans when they tolerated yeah. it, and the whole of the international community said to Ukraine and the others, we'll take them away. Yeah. And, and they agreed to do that. The Ukrainians themselves at the time didn't want to hold on to them. So that's just a sort of a counterfactual alternative history that just doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. It makes quite a good little soundbite from the Commons, yeah. doesn't it? Are you surprised at the lack of success of the Russian conventional forces, the way they've been pushed back by the Ukrainians? Does that surprise you? From the public source information, from what the, I'm, I'm talking about what the analysts say, I'm not talking about the conspiracy theory. I'm talking about peer-reviewed academics 
employed in Western universities. They are saying that they're surprised by the lack of conventional success of the Russian forces. But even more interestingly, if I may put it this way, is um, the lack of understanding by Putin and his leadership. There was invasion in 2014 of a Crimea and the Donbass, right? Okay. Since then, NATO and the United States in particular has been sending the Ukrainian armed forces um, new weaponry. They have been training the Ukrainian armed forces to NATO level professional standards. Now, one assumes that the Russian intelligence community knew that. And consider the culture of the Ukraine and the ability of the Russian intelligence service to put operatives in the Ukraine. It's a, their cultures are very similar. The languages are the same or very similar. So you could easily hide intelligence officers in plain sight in the Ukraine. And how the Russian intelligence services missed that is inconceivable. There's an analogy actually from Russia actually in World War II that speaks to this. Way back in 1940, I think it was 1940, but the Russian general staff conducted a war game. They do it all the time. They conducted a war game on a potential German invasion of Russia. And Marshal Zhukov, who would, be, who would become the, the head of the Russian armed forces, was in charge of the German team in that war game. And they concluded more or less what happened in Operation Barbarossa in 1941. They concluded that the Germans would gain massive victories in 1941. The report was given to Stalin. He ignored it. It was inconvenient. It was politically inconvenient. I suspect what has happened, and I'm just mm. an interested mm. person that reads mm. all sorts of stuff, I suspect that the, the Russian intelligence community said to Putin, here's the evidence. They've been training with NATO trainers for a while. They've been getting NATO equipment. And yet Putin went in you know, he sent in military policemen, actually, because he expected to occupy crossroads, yeah. to occupy town halls. You can see the image of Russian armored vehicles and a long column burned yeah. out. Yeah. They were not deployed for battle. So there's something bizarre in that regard. The other thing, of course, is for the future, Russia at a conventional level has been proven to be a bit of a paper tiger. And I mean, no disrespect to the Russian servicemen that have been led into this and have been killed and captured and maimed. And I'm sure there are many people in Russia at the moment who are starting to ask questions. Yeah. Recently on Russian mainstream television, there was a senior Russian officer who actually spoke out and said, well, this is going to end in tears for us. And that was in the mainstream controlled Russian media. So there is something that doesn't quite add up. But here's the point. Here's another point if I may add it. So we know that conventionally, at the moment, Russia is a paper tiger. Yet NATO is growing in size. And if that's the case, then the conventional threat from Russia diminishes. And therefore, it brings us back to Putin. Like many men, you know, he is, you know, like many male politicians, you know, they love to stand up at the podium and beat their breasts and thump the podium and all the rest of it. You know, there's an ego thing here. The more he has humiliated militarily and conventionally, the more he's going to wave his nuclear weapons in front of us. And there we come back to that danger of escalation. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, at the end of the day, an issue that our media is not covering because to do so, as they would see it, is you're undermining you know, the Ukrainians. You're not. When someone like me speaks about it, I've first of all got to more or less say I'm not a haggis-eating Putin surrender monkey. Remember how President Chirac at the time of the Iraq war mm -hmm. said, France, nah, we're not getting involved. And some Americans referred to him as a cheese-eating surrender monkey. Well, Macron is now getting a bit of that from some Ukrainian politicians. Some of our politicians are sort of saying the same thing. And I think also, to get back to the original point about this, I think some politicians are overly genuflecting to the NATO 
uh, position. You know, we're okay. You know, you know, we might be anti-nuclear, but you know, we're solid, and we'll prove that we remain solid by being uber loyal. Remember the Falklands War. General Galtieri was at, pro at, at trouble domestically. Mm. So, he, 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 I mean, I'm not talking about who owns the Malvinas or anything like that, yeah, yeah. but the politics of it. You know, the, the political hard man, the political big man, looks for a foreign adventure to try and bolster his position. Mm. Margaret Thatcher, I mean, it fell off the trees. I don't, I don't, she didn't engineer the Falklands War, I'm not suggesting that, although some of the things she did during it were decidedly iffy. But she won a watch because after the Falklands War, she was seen as a big, big woman and she yeah. got popularity out of it. And politicians yeah. will often be prepared to play the military adventurous card for not particularly honourable reasons. And of course, you get the other side of it where politicians who are taking a more moderate position are, are framed as surrender monkeys. And SNP politicians, to get back to the original point, have to be responsible and careful about what they say. Yeah. You know, Stuart thinks that, you know, you know, NATO's a bee's knees. That's up to Stuart. As I say, I don't have a problem with NATO membership, but my view of NATO membership is more in line with, say, Macron and the Germans and the Italians. Stuart might have a different position. And the more he talks about it, at some point in the future, some politicians, not now, it doesn't suit them, some journalists, unionist journalists, not now, but it doesn't suit them, are going to ask him some questions. Who yeah. do you run with? Yeah. Macron, yeah. the Germans, the Italians, or the Brits. We've got the midterm elections coming up in November in the United States. And the way it's looking, I wish it was otherwise, is that the Republicans are going to win the midterm elections. And if they do, then they've got control of the House of Representatives. You know, Nancy Pelosi may well still be in um, the House of Representatives, but she won't be the Speaker. She won't be the Speaker, no. And that's the likelihood. And then if they win the midterms, then it's some sort of Trump, a Trump clone that becomes... Oh, God, can you, can you imagine but, if Trump... Yeah. And what does that say for NATO? If we've got a Trump or a Trumpian president at that side of the Atlantic, you get Boris Johnson here, and you get Macron and the Germans and the Italians and others trying to find some sort of middle way. Where will Scotland fit in there? We need to look beyond. And in fact, we need to actually look at Scotland's interests, as every country does. What's best for Scotland? Yeah. Yeah. And the other complete unknown in all this is how secure is Putin's position? The way you described people being afraid to tell him the reality, really, or him ignoring it, I can quite picture that but there are a lot of other people generals you know politicians in russia how much are they going to let him drive them along this path you know embarrassment might be the least worst outcome for them that's um, right and, and and talking about regime change with a someone who's got a finger in thousands of nuclear buttons is not a smart move you know it's, it's simply not a smart move i mean as a teacher and and, and this is not trite if you had a disturbed young man in a corridor, you should treat all young people with respect. Anyway, as a teacher, mm. that's how you treat all young people with respect. You don't deserve to be a teacher if you don't treat all young people with respect. But, you know, if you've got a, you know, a six foot two, big boy is 16, and he's going off in one, you treat him with respect professionally, but also... You use de-escalation approaches that are, you know, that are appropriate, professional, and measured. Yeah. And Putin at the moment is an angry, wounded Russian bear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it should be treated in that way. And even in the United States, the public discourse around security issues is more open than the UK it actually is. There are ex-CIA officials and senior people saying to congressmen, watch your tongue. Stop bragging about yeah. the fact mm, that yeah. it's U.S. intelligence supplied to the Ukrainians to target Russian generals. You shouldn't be saying that. Yeah. It happens in other matter, but you shouldn't be saying that because that will then get personal. They said the same about American intelligence helping sink the Moskva, didn't they? The, yeah. The, the big and, and stuff battleship. Like it also has to be said there's going to be a lot of a disinformation 
as a an EIS member, the teacher will just maybe finish with one final, final point, which is the case for all educators. And I've been thinking about this, you know, as a, I mean, I'm no longer, you know, I'm, I'm still an EIS member, but I'm no longer in the classroom. I'm, as a modern studies teacher who actually did a bit of security issues when I was doing my degree and who who's interested in military affairs, which I remember and all the rest of it, covering the Ukraine war in the classroom, and there's no way you can't cover it, would be a challenging prospect. Now, look at children in one of the world wars. Where were their information sources? Their parents, the morning newspapers, the evening newspapers, and the broadcast for the BBC. Consider the media bombardment that young people are getting from all sources about this war in Ukraine. Consider their mental health. Consider the conflicting, you know, conflicting images they're getting. How are they meant to absorb this? How are they meant to synthesize this and come to some rational um, position on, you know, look at the different points of view? These are going to be huge challenges for educators here in Scotland and elsewhere. You, you can't shut the classroom door and leave these issues outside. How are we going to deal with these? How are teachers going to take children yeah, in the classroom through this? How are parents going to do that? There are, there are whole aspects of this Ukraine war that are very different from wars in the past. There is the nuclear threat, which is being underplayed, but there is also the impact on the mental health of people, people's attitudes to things. I mean, thanks for letting me have this discussion, but the unpacking of this, and it's horrendous it for everybody. Yeah. Teachers are members of the General Teaching Council of Scotland, and it has a set of ethics. And those ethics are quite good. It means that teachers should abide by these ethics. So Scottish teachers are better equipped than some other of my professional colleagues in other countries to, as guides to try and take this forward. But it is, it is actually a real challenge. And as chair of Peace Education Scotland, which is a wee charity that Scottish C&D set up, a wee plan there, um, it's relating to peace and education, we will be looking at how we try and provide resources, along with others who are already doing a lot of good work. Yeah. Quakers are doing a lot of good work on, on, on conflict resolution in the classroom. Maybe that's something we get you to come back and talk a bit more about. Yeah, sure. That yeah. sounds interesting as well. Oh, yeah, it does. And I mean, I was going back to everything that, you, that you've touched on, um, Bill, you know, the, the idea that we wouldn't be trying to get this de-escalated and get on to putting onto an off-ramp as soon as possible. That definitely needs to be where, where we're going. And every time I talk to you, I go away much, much better informed. And uh, we've covered a lot of ground from, you know, Stuart McDonald's, maybe it was a faux pas. Uh, you know, he's going to have to um, dig himself out from that particular kind of... Uh, I'll have to stop digging. Yeah, so thanks again for contacting us. It's really been good kind of talking to you. And yeah, as Fiona said earlier, we'll probably have you back to talk about the educational aspects of all this. That was an unexpected but very relevant, uh, very timely conversation with Bill. We'll put the link to the original Indy Jigsaw Show episode where we discuss Trident and the TPNW in much more detail. The link will be below in the notes. And also on our podcast website, you'll find audio versions of all these shows. And if you go into the category that's called Defence, there are other uh, podcasts in there. Go to the website, click on Defence, and you'll find a whole playlist. Thanks for listening to this special bonus episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to Scottish Independence Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts from. There's new episodes every Friday and often a bonus on a Tuesday. Please share with anybody you think would enjoy it. Bye now.